Hi, Paul Scanlon here. Thanks for taking the time to click on my podcast. I want to spend time focusing on my primary passions of leadership, personal development, communication, growing big people, and I hope that these podcasts really help and add value to your life and to your journey. Thanks for tuning in. I'm going to speak to you a little bit today about finance and about money because I want to keep equipping you in the season when we all kind of feel, okay, this is okay in this season to talk about finance and about money. Though the teaching I'll give you today will be relevant to any time in our life and our journey as a church. But let me start by reading to you from Luke 16, the Message Bible, where Jesus tells the story of the crooked manager. I don't know what version you're in, but I'm going to be in Message. So if you don't want to try follow me, then I'll just read this to you. Jesus said to his disciples, there was once a rich man who had a manager. He got reports that the manager had been taking advantage of his position by running up huge personal expenses. So he called him in and said, what's this I hear about you? You're fired and I want a complete audit of your books. The manager said to himself, what am I going to do? I've lost my job as a manager. I'm not strong enough for laboring. I'm too proud to beg. I've got a plan. Here's what I'll do. Then when I'm turned out into the street, people will take me into their homes. Then he went at it. One after another, he called in the people who were in debt to his master. He said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He replied, a hundred jugs of olive oil. The manager said, here, take your bill, sit down, quick. Now write it out for 50. To the next, he said, and you, what do you owe? He said, a hundred sacks of wheat. He said, take your bill, write it out for 80. Now here's a surprise. The master, his boss, actually praised the crooked manager. Why? Because he knew how to look after himself. Streetwise people are smarter in this regard than law-abiding citizens. They are on constant alert, looking for angles, surviving by their wits. I want you to be smart in the same way, but for what is right, using every adversity to stimulate you the creative survival, to concentrate your attention on the bare essentials so you live, really live, and not complacently just get by, just getting by on good behavior. Jesus is not condoning this man's wrongdoing, but he risked us thinking that and risked them thinking that by taking an example that was shocking to most of us that he would use a crooked manager that was stealing from his boss to make a point that the people of the world or the people, if you like, outside of the church seem to be smarter when it comes to handling money and difficult situations that are touching on finance and prosperity and security financially. They seem to live much more by instinct and wits and as he used this phrase in the Message Bible, creative survival instincts kick in to navigate their way through difficult times financially. Whereas we in the church, and I watch this now for 30 years in the church, as a believer and helping Christians, in the church, what is often lacking when it comes to finances is what I would simply call just street smart, common sense stuff. I think in the church we've majored on faith and usually what gets you in financial trouble is nothing to do with faith. It's to do with just simple things that we think faith replaces. 
We think if we tithe, it's a magic wand and it's paying protection money to the mafia. So if we tithe, we'll never be in debt, we'll never be in financial problems because we tithe. And it's like our, our, our rabbit's foot, our, our lucky charm. And I've talked to people over many years that think that tithing is a replacement for good stewardship of finance and, and, and good budgeting and, and, and not spending what you don't have and so on. But I tithe, so God's somehow going to make it all work out okay. And that's simply not true. And I don't think we've taught that well. I think we have taught tithing as some magic potion and some magic wand over your life. And it's simply not. And we've tried to teach that in a balanced way over the years here with all of our giving. We've tried to teach us to build a generous giving life, including financially, not exclusively, but including financially. We could not teach build a generous life and not mean finances. We have been intimidated generally for a long time now about talking about money inside the life of the local church. We feel that people feel, especially in England and Europe, that if we talk about money, people are sat there this morning saying, huh, it's all about money in this church. Well, well, you don't say that when you go to Sainsbury's. You know, they're just all about money in that place. I'm not going to go there anymore. But it seems that when we come to the church, there is also a trading enterprise. There is also a charity. And unlike Sainsbury's, is donation dependent. We're not selling anything. We are simply existing based on the generosity of people to partner with us in this vision to help us reach more and more people. We, I suppose, have the least leverage to use to get people to give unless people's hearts are touched, unless people's hearts are buying in to the big idea that we have to reach more and more people like you and those you saw on screen and those that are not here yet, that are yet to be reached, then we have little leverage, I suppose, to use in the church. So all we can do, we can't stand up and talk about things that leverage you to give. We have given up the tools, the old-fashioned tools that are still widely used around the world. We chose as the church to give them up. The tools of manipulation and guilt projection to get you to give more money. The tools that say if you give, God will do this. If you don't give, God won't do this for you. We've given those tools up in our church and in our ministry. We've abandoned them. So you won't hear us getting up here saying if you do this, God will do that. We don't want to twist your arm. We don't want to manipulate people. We simply want to inspire you as best we can. And then all we can do is step back and say, well, God, it's over to you now. I don't know what's going on in people's hearts and lives. I don't know whether people are seeing what we're trying to portray as best we can. But all we can rely on then after we've done our best, after, after you've done all, stand, Paul said in Ephesians. After we've done all, we stand and say in two weeks' time, the offering will be what it will be. But we will not say, if, it, if the offering is not a great offering, well, it's because we didn't do a great job in presenting it. I think that's all we can do to, to inspire you. Of course, many in the life of the church here don't need any DVDs, don't need any videos, don't need any reminder and refreshing on what the vision is. You're going to give what you're going to give anyway, like we are in our family, uh, uh, because we understand it, we get it. We, we bought in many, many years ago. But some of you need us to show you what it is that the vision offering is about. You're new amongst us. And years ago, I, I overcame that fear and that pressure of speaking about money because I felt it's something we have to simply speak about, not just for the sake of the church, which is donation-dependent charity, but for your sake. Because many of us have grown up with faulty thinking about money. 
Many of us are struggling financially because our parents did and our grandparents did and all of our family lived in debt and we carried that into our life and into our Christian life and now we come into the church and we'd love to give, we'd love to tithe, we'd love to do something, a vision offering and it's not that we don't because we are skinny and stingy. We don't because we're broke. And so we have to spend time teaching you how to not be broke. How to live a more financially responsible life so that at least you can enjoy your life and have something left over to bless your life, your family, your world, and any charity you're involved with, including the local church where you are planted, where you're growing, you're thriving. And we tried to paint that big picture with regard to our approach to, to finances. And this, this story here has always intrigued me in, in Luke 16. I find it challenging the example and shocking the example Jesus used. I'm sure there were lots of better examples. I don't think we'd put a testimony on screen of a crooked manager to inspire you financially to handle your money better. I think you'd think, what the heck was that? But Jesus put that on screen. And the point he's making isn't that yippee, you know, somebody made a bit of money on the side by stealing. The point was that many people seem not to have the clutter and the baggage that we have with regard to survival financially and survival in situations of life. And I think we have slipped into often these conspiracy theories that everything's a demon and the devil's after me and, and, and some big spiritual law going on and I need to understand more. And often it's just simple economics and, and, and common sense that we are lacking and that we are embarrassed to talk about because it sounds just too unspiritual. There'll be no goosebumps in this service this morning from when I got up. There'll nobody saying, I feel the anointing as I teach you on giving. And I think we've, we've wanted that so much because money is such a harsh thing. Money is such a down-to-earth bringer <laughs> when we talk about it. It's such an emotive thing for many people. And that's why I think we avoid talking. It's such a controversial subject in the life of the church and, and, and people's lives generally. Um, and and the, the things the Bible says about money, where, where it talks about the love of money being one of the roots of, of all kinds of evil. And I think we know money is a biggie. And, and it's such a biggie that we therefore choose not to talk about it. How crazy is that? I'm going to mention a few principles to you from a book that I read recently called The Millionaire Next Door. Uh, it is a book I picked up in the States. I was intrigued by the title. It's a secular book. It's not a Christian book. Um, and all the better for that. Because I don't want to read yet another book that tells me um, the same things I've known all my life and the same things you've known all your Christian life about sowing and about reaping and about seed time and harvest and all that stuff we have said till the cows come home, but we still have millions and millions of Christians who know all that and they're broke. And they can't get ahead financially. So we know all that stuff. It's not for lack of knowing it, not for lack of knowing the scriptures, understanding it, having it taught to us till the cows come home, but we don't seem to do any better financially. Therefore, I think it's worth us having a little bit more common sense and practical wisdom in our discussion about finances, because I think that's probably going to make more difference to us than teaching us to have more faith about money, and that's important to teach too. This book, The Millionaire Next Door, is based on a study over 20 years 
about how people become wealthy and who they are. It's not talking about, you know, the, the Alan Sugars um, or the Donald Trumps. It's not talking about multi-billionaires. When he talks about the millionaire next door, the idea of the title is that most people that are, that are wealthy live next door to you, live in ordinary suburbs, in ordinary cities, and because they blend in and don't look rich, we don't think they have anything. The book is talking about those people, which are the vast majority of millionaires in this survey in America. When it says millionaire, it's not talking about people that have millions and millions, you know, stashed away in a bank somewhere. They in the book have written uh, a number of multivariants is the language they use to decide what their definition is of a millionaire. And for those of you that are interested, you can do this little sum later. Their idea and definition of a millionaire is to take your pre-tax income, multiply it by your age, divide it by 10, that equals your net worth. So if you earn 40,000 pounds a year, pre-tax, and you're 35 years of age, you're earning 140,000 pounds a year divided by 10 gives you 14,000 pounds net worth. In other words, if everything collapsed in your world today and you had to sell up and get rid of everything, what you would have left to survive on is your net worth. The book points out that the calculations may show that you have a high net worth, but then you've got to factor in the cost of your expensive lifestyle. The book research showed that most people who live in expensive homes, drive expensive cars, wear expensive bling bling, don't actually have any money because they're up to the eyeballs in debt. So all that glitters is not actually gold or it's gold that belongs to someone else. <laughs> Listen to me today. I am not standing here judging anybody. We and I in my, Glenn and I and us in our finance have gone through different seasons as you all have in, in handling finances. And that's why I said some of the introductory thoughts and comments about, I think, we've, I think we've gone down this route. If it's all faith and all supernatural and you tithe and God just, we've done all that and been there, got the t-shirt and it didn't work. And then we've swung to, you know, just secular management of our finances and that doesn't work by itself either it's a combination it's a combination of spirit and the supernatural and wisdom for life and practical common sense but but those two together are, are not easy to pair up it seems in much of the church it seems that one is the enemy of the other if you talk about faith and only faith the people that are in the congregation who have built their wealth on practical wisdom feel that alienated, that we don't understand them because that's not how they tick. And if we teach only on practical wisdom, the people that believe that God has blessed them financially through definite faith events and faith-defining moments in their life feel that we are not a supernatural enough church when it comes to finances. I believe a combination of those two things should be what we teach in everything, in healing, in health, um, in growth as a person, in work life and so on and so on. I think a combination, I think it was Jesus was, that, that it's not just all spiritual or all natural, it's a combination of both. 
Also, the book points out that most people with wealth don't even live in upscale neighborhoods or drive luxury cars. Wealth is not the same as income. If you make good money and spend it all, you're not getting wealthier. You're just living higher. Wealth is what you accumulate. It's not what you spend. Wealth isn't luck. It's not inheritance. It's not education. It is not anything that's going for you that's not going for the person next to you. Wealth is simple, hard work, practical wisdom, perseverance and self-discipline eventually produces a long-term earmark of wealth and prosperity in and through your life. The book says that there's never been more personal wealth in the USA, because the study was based in the USA, yet most Americans are not wealthy. Almost half the wealth that was surveyed over 20 years in this book, almost half of the wealth in America is owned by 3%, 3% of the population. I don't know if you heard the statistic, but I was shocked when I heard this some years ago, that the richest, the richest 7%, 7% of people in the world, the richest 7% people in the world, the Bill Gates and these people, could overnight write off third world debt, all of it. And that's just a handful of individuals in the world. So what we realize is that most of the wealth is pushed up into the, into the domain of a few people, even though we all have access to the same information that they have, even though we're all gifted in different ways and all have abilities and gifts that God has given us all, because the Bible says, this is interesting for us to note in the Old Testament now, that God has given us the ability to produce wealth. It doesn't say God gives you wealth. It's not what it says. We, we, have, we have preached that wrong. God is not here to make you wealthy. God has given you the ability to make wealth. Financial wealth, relational wealth, mental wealth. He's given you the ability. Now what we do with that ability, and in many of us it's dormant. And we're waiting for a lucky break. We're waiting for somebody to give us the call that changes everything. And, and, and great if that comes, but don't live depending on it. God has given you the ability to produce wealth. And yet knowing all of that, it's still true. In every generation it's been true that the wealth is held by a very small percentage of the population. Most of the rest of us live paycheck to paycheck. The average household in America has a net worth of 10,000 pounds, excluding, by the way, and this net worth doesn't include any home equity. You can't say, well, if I sold my house, I'd be rich. Because we all know that that housing market is so volatile that you may not be as rich as you thought you were going to be. And the economy will decide that for you. You can't protect that. The average household's net worth, if everything was, had to be sold overnight, is about 10,000 pounds. And that is still way above where many people would finish up. They could barely survive a month, in other words, without a salary. Even higher income households' net worth in this survey in America was only 30,000 pounds when everything was done and finished and there's no more salary coming. I was interested in a number of factors in the book that were 
that were identifying factors in the profiling of these, of these millionaires next door. The guy that drives the white van. And he's a painter and decorator. Or he's a landscape gardener. And he employs maybe six or seven people. And so there's nothing about him as he drives past you every day that makes you think he's got money, but he's a millionaire. And he's long-term sustaining that in the way he's thinking and handling his finances. And this is, this is the kind of people the book is talking about. I want to state that again so you don't jump off the bus and think, well, this is no good to me. I'm a student. I'm broke. Listen up. This is the best time, student, broke student. This is the best time to listen. <laughs> so you don't become a broke middle-aged person. Wealthy people, profiling factors now, that he'd found in serving for 20, 20 years of watching and studying is worth listening to. They've done all the work for us. Wealthy people live well below their means. Observation number one. Why is it that most poor people live well above their means then? There's a clue there for us. Wealthy people live well below their means. Number two, they allocate their time and energy and money in ways that build wealth, not decrease wealth. Number three, they believe financial independence, listen to this carefully, is more important than displaying high social status. The average income is only 7% of the overall wealth. In other words, they live on 7% of total wealth. Most of us live on every single penny we have and then try to spend what we don't have. Number five, listen to this carefully. <laughs> Most of their wives are very conservative with money and are careful spenders. Ooh. Moving on. Number six. Each of these surveyed millionaires next door say they have... This is not the term the book used. I've cleaned it up and made it polite and Christian. <laughs> they have a I've had enough fund. I'll let you imagine what the... In other words, they have enough accumulated wealth to live without working for at least 10 years if they chose to or if they had to. Number seven, two-thirds of them work between 40 and 55 hours a week. Number eight, they invest at least 20% of their income. So if they're on £100,000 a year, they invest £20,000 a year in something, somewhere. Save. Save. People, people don't save. Well, I've got nothing to save. Yes, you have. Well, it's not much. We didn't say it had to be much. Saving is not about amount. It's about the discipline of keeping your hands off some. I'm saving it. It's about the discipline. I did not grow up, and most of you did not grow up in a, in a saving culture in your homes. You grew up with lack and we never had anything to save. And, uh, and in my family, we used to make jokes about people that had savings. As if it was like a bad thing to do or as if it was like okay for them. But it's the biggest lie we have been sold, many of us, especially that grew up in poorer, working class backgrounds, that saving is for the rich people. No, saving is a discipline of life. Teach it to your kids as early as they can get it. You, you spend some and you save some. And you invest some. Number nine, they recommend accounting. These millionaires next door recommend accounting and law to their children as careers. Because they reckon, based on their own experience, that tax advisors 
and estate planners will be in big demand and short supply in the years to come. Just a tip there, in case you're wondering what to do for a career. Proverbs 21 verse 20, so I can put a bit of scripture in in case you think this is all very carnal. The wise man saves for his future, but the foolish man spends whatever he gets. Need help to misunderstand that, don't you? Proverbs 21.5, steady plodding brings prosperity. Hasty speculation brings poverty. Steady plodding. How charismatic is that? That's why we don't like it. We don't like steady plot. That's why I wrote the book Events versus Process. We, don't, we like events. We like being zapped on the head in the prayer line and we wake up and it's all gone. We, we live for the event. We live for the miracle, for the mountaintop, for the breakthrough. But process actually is what's governing your life. And events are only as good as the process inside which they are happening. Steady plotting brings prosperity. Proverbs 20 verse 16, it is risky to make loans to strangers. Just wisdom, just simple, practical. Solomon, who's the richest man that ever lived. This is Solomon's take. Solomon, the richest man that ever lived said, steady plodding. Well, he didn't need to do steady plodding. He inherited wealth, but he understood that that wealth cost somebody something like you saw on screen today. Someone paid a price for what? For the seat you're sitting on and the screens you're watching and the coffee shop you'll drink coffee in and the kids' church and the daycare and someone, someone paid for that. Someone financed that. And we understand that and Solomon understood that and passed that on to us. Number 10, in these observations about these millionaires next door, their parents, and this is a term I liked in the book, their parents did not provide economic outpatient care to their children. <laughs> Number 10, their adult children were financially self-sufficient. Some of you parents are broke because you're still financing your kids who are in their 20s. Who are not learning what we are teaching today and what maybe you learned later in life and are now trying to pass on to them quite late in their life. Teach your kids to be financially independent. Teach your kids to be good with money. It'll be a huge gift to you and to who they eventually ever marry. If you hand your kids over to someone in marriage and you have taught your kids to be good with money. It's, it's rough, when, it's rough when, uh, uh, when you kind of couple get together and then, you know, a year in, they're arguing all the time about money, but nobody even thought that we have married a spender and a spender. Or we married a spender and a saver. And, and we've got these combinations and we're arguing about it, but that didn't happen on the event of the wedding. It's how they both came to the moment. And so train your kids. And if you had no training, get training. You say, well, I don't know. I have no clue about money. That's no excuse. Then, then learn about money. I had no clue about money. My parents were always arguing about money. We were so broke when we were kids. I mean, you don't know you're poor when you're a kid because all your mates are poor. But looking back, I realize now how poor we were as kids. We had, one, we had one container in our home that we took turns to drink out of. Seriously. And it was an empty jam jar. And looking back, I mean, I mean you all know, don't you? As soon as I say that and I think that, I think, wow, that's like Oliver Twist stuff. <laughs> we were poor. We had nothing. 
And when my mum told me stories later, like the one I just told you now, and, and then that jam jar, that empty jam jar got broken one day when my mother threw it at my dad. And it smashed and then we had nothing to drink out of. If you've only got one thing to drink out of in your home, throw something else is the wisdom of that. Is the, is the, the model of that story. When, you, when you're in a, a moment and you reach for it, think, ooh, only cup we've got. I'll find something else. Or better still, think it through, have something close by. Then it's not a spontaneous moment and you throw something that you need to keep. Just some advice. So I didn't grow up with any financial wisdom or help. And so I, I can stand here today and say, I didn't know anything. But that's no excuse. You can't say, well, I'm broke because I don't know anything about money. Well, then learn. There's never been more information available now about finances. And so please don't be ignorant and say, well, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm in my 30s and I'm broke and we're always arguing about money all the time. Please don't let that become the norm of your life. Find out what is it that we are missing. Get some wisdom. If we're not providing it here, get it somewhere else. Talk to someone. Read a book. Watch some programs. Go to a seminar. Invest in getting your head around it. And I promise you what you're about to discover is really simple. It's not magical and mystical and shrouded from your view and only seen by the chosen few. It's really simple. It's simple, simple stuff that builds wealth or decreases wealth. And that's why I loved about this book that, that surveyed that these millionaires next door, it was a survey which is difficult, you know, quite boring reading, I thought, but interesting. And it was survey after survey of how much these people spend on watches or on suits of clothing or on shoes. And the survey showed that these millionaires next door spend no more money on any of those things than the average person spends. <clears throat> Number 12. These people were skillful at targeting marketing opportunities. Number 13, they chose the right occupations in many cases. Number 14, two-thirds of these millionaires next door were self-employed people. Less than 20% are self-employed, but they accounted for two-thirds of all the millionaires in this survey. They always say, don't they, you'll never get rich working for someone else. Most millionaires, number 15... Um, in the survey, some chose these right occupations, like we mentioned earlier, in financial management and so on. But many of them, the book told, was in rather dull types of jobs. Um, several of them had welding companies. Several of them were farmers. Several of them had pest control businesses that they built their wealth through. Some of them were builders, painter decorators, landscape gardeners, you know, things that you don't think there's money in that over, over the long haul they'd made that work for them, employed carefully and slowly, got a small staff, got a loyal customer base and had slowly built wealth over many, many years to the point where they were financially independent, still working, still get up every day and go to work, still involved, but don't really need to work if they didn't want to and didn't have to. Most of these people were not millionaires till their 50s and beyond. Um, an interesting uh, survey, a, a comment in the book story, the vice president of a trust fund um, had arranged a dinner to invite wealthy people to consider donating to the charity that the vice president was concerned that there were not enough funds for in the coming financial budget of the year ahead. 
And so they, they invited 10 first-generation millionaires that were known to some of the people in the community and were targeted and, and called and mailed and invited to come to a soiree, to this, to this meal. And obviously they're going to be hit on to give to this charity. The vice president of the trust fund commented following the fundraising dinner with these first-time, first-generation millionaires. These people cannot be millionaires. They don't look like millionaires. They dress scruffy. They don't eat like millionaires because all the posh food that was put out, they didn't eat. But when they found a, a, a dish of crisps or sausage on a stick, all these millionaires ate that. You know, but the fancy food that the vice president thought that they would naturally eat every day at home, they just ignored all the fancy stuff. And most wealthy people I know prefer a sausage on a stick than some fancy thing you can't pronounce the name of. In fact, when I've been with wealthy people eating and they read a menu, they often say, what the heck is that? And because they don't know what it is, they don't want it. And they're looking for like egg and chips or something or a, you know, a steak or something that we know what it is. These people don't act like millionaires. They don't even have millionaire names, he said. Where are the millionaires who look like millionaires? The point being that that's the whole point of the book. That most people who look like millionaires are probably not. They're just probably up to their eyeballs in debt. Most wealthy people do not look wealthy. Ask the person next to you, does he mean you? Now, here's a big thing in the book, which I think you've got the impression already. Listen to this now. Long-term wealthy people are frugal. Frugal. Frugal means sparing or economical as regards money and things. Wasteful means expending something carelessly, extravagantly, hyper-consumption to no purpose. The book says that being frugal is the cornerstone of wealth building. Now, frugal doesn't mean stingy. doesn't mean scrooge. Frugal simply means you are smart and you are thoughtful with regards to money and things. You're not just wasteful and spending without thinking it through. But the pressure, this is the big thing we've all got to get past, I think, in this Western appearance-driven culture we live in. The pressure to display wealth, to prove you have wealth, is enormous upon us. Especially if you came from a background of having nothing, then you suddenly have something. You want to go and buy a big flash car. You want bling bling because you want to say to all your neighbors, get a load of me. <laughs> Look how well I am doing. You want to be living somewhere posh and wearing flash because you want to display your wealth. And if you can't get past the pressure to display wealth, you're probably never going to have long-term wealth because you're going to be spending what you could be investing and saving by buying cheaper. Uh, the book talks a lot about these long-term wealthy millionaire next door people that they never ever or rarely buy new cars. They buy second hand, which makes great sense. Let someone else suffer the depreciation cost. I'll buy it a year later when it's dropped 20 grand. But I'll let you pay the 20 grand and I'll buy it with 10,000 miles on the clock. Still a fantastic car. Put a private plate on, nobody knows how old it is. <laughs> yeah. 
You know, uh, I don't know if you saw, I watched a show last night, that, that million pound drop. Anybody see it? Crikey. The, the, and so many of these programs, and the book talks about these programs on TV, which is so true when you watch them, that we love to watch prize money, big prize money TV shows, because it's like watching your surrogate self. You imagine yourself, don't you, going in broke and walking out with half a million thinking, I'm going to apply to that program and see if I can get on that program. We live thinking, if only I could get a break, if only I could get rich quick, um, because we want instant gratification. That's what our whole culture is driven by. We don't want process, don't want hard work, don't want to be frugal. We want to spend, spend some. We don't want to save. We don't want to say no to the thing we'd like to say yes to. We, we've not overcome those drives within us, and that's why most of us will never be long-term prosperous because we can't resist the temptation to have it and have it now. We'd rather take the star prize of 10,000 pounds or the 10,000 pound car that's, ooh, you've won a new car. But have you ever heard or seen a big prize-giving show where the hostess said, you can have the 10,000 pound brand new car or you can have a scholarship for the next two years to one of the top universities in the country, which long-term will be worth far more to you than the value of this car today. Oh, no, I'll take the car, I'll take the car. But the scholarship would be far more worthwhile. But we don't see beyond the instant, immediate gratification of now. Wealthy people budget. They use only two or three credit cards at the most. Some of you walk around with a wallet with so many cars in it, you don't know, it's like shuffling a deck of cards and you don't know what you've got in there and your head's spinning with what's on what card and moving money around cards and it's an absolute military operation every month. <laughs> and that may be a season you're in right now. I'm not judging anybody because I know most of us have been there, done that, got the t-shirt. But the interesting thing is most wealthy people, and again, wealthy is the guy next door, not the billionaire, so come down with me a little bit to where we're at. Two or three credit cards at the most. They don't spend, as the book talks about, we don't, they don't spend in anticipation of having money before they've got it. <laughs> they wait till they've got it <laughs> before they spend it. They don't work to spend, but they work to achieve and become financially independent. They pay no more, as I mentioned earlier, for cars, clothes, watches, holidays than average people do question the book asks, and I've got to finish, time's gone. Question, is the pride of a new car worth the crippling debt every month of the payment on it? Because the book talks about stuff changes people. And once you have, once status and identity and ego is attached to stuff, stuff actually becomes irrational. Having stuff really becomes absolute. You see these people on TV, don't you? with closets full of brand new stuff they've never worn. So they're not buying it because they need it. It's like a status thing to have it. And to have the latest handbag or the latest outfit or the latest jewelry or the latest you know, trainers or the latest you know, decoration in the home. Or, and it's like, but that once, once having stuff is attached to your sense of personhood, stuff really becomes irrational in your world. And once that kicks in, you'll never be long-term financially well off until you get rid of that. Once you've got rid of that, you can buy what you want 
knowing you're not buying it from something in you you're feeding that that is keeping alive. It's getting, it's breaking that. When you spend, when you spend more than, when you spend more than you earn. Mr. Allen, a self-made multimillionaire whose rich friends decided to buy him a Rolls Royce for his 60th birthday, said this. He found out four months in they had ordered him a brand new Rolls Royce, his rich friends. It was an eight-month waiting list for a brand new Rolls Royce. When he found out four months in, he canceled the order. They said to him, why the heck did you do that? We wanted to buy you a Rolls Royce. He said, I'll tell you why. Here's his answers. This is the man that was independently wealthy, could have bought his own Rolls Royce, which was a clue to his friends, maybe as to why he hadn't already. He said this, a Rolls Royce represents nothing important to me. Number two, I don't want to change my life because of a car. Number three, I can't throw fish I've caught in the back of a Rolls Royce. And I like doing that with the truck I drive now. He said, my offices are in an industrial estate. A Rolls Royce driven into there would be out of place and would alienate my workers from me who saw me driving in every day in a Rolls Royce. He said, I don't want the drama of running two vehicles. I can afford to, but I don't want the drama of it. He also said, I can't go to my favorite restaurants in a downtrodden part of town in a brand new Rolls Royce. It'll get stolen. I don't know worry about where I park my car. I don't worry where I leave my van. But I would then be thinking through before I left home, where can I park my Rolls Royce? Any of you with a brand new car or with a slightly upmarket car know what I'm talking about. Because you've had your car keyed just because it's a nice car. That is the culture we're living in. So you know that if you have a Rolls Royce in Bradford, <laughs> it's going to change your life. The car will change your life. He also said, I can't go to drive through in a Rolls Royce. I'm going to scratch it. The drive through is too narrow. He said, I don't, want to, I don't want to worry about parking the Rolls Royce. And, and his whole point was what I'm trying to get across to you. This man was himself wealthy and could afford to buy his own Rolls Royce. But, but instead of I'm going to have one to show you how wealthy I am, the practical wisdom was, it's just too much drama in my world to have a Rolls Royce. I don't need to have one to prove I'm wealthy. I know I'm wealthy, and I'm the only one that needs to know. But unless you can uncouple from that pressure to try and keep up with the Joneses, when really the Joneses don't care, because the Joneses are in debt. That's what the Joneses are not telling you. Oh, I've got more money than you. Remember that Harry Enfield character where they compared wealth? That's the whole spirit that, that is all out there. Especially when we are raised, as I said again, in a working class background where you kind of fight for everything, struggle for everything. And now I've got it, I'm going to show it. No, no, oh, hang on a minute. Talk to someone first. And maybe buy something a little cheaper and invest the rest or save the rest and long term a pattern of that will give you long term prosperity which God wants you to have we want you to have so that you're not long term broke and always struggling to make ends meet interesting finally if millionaires had inherited their wealth they paid far more for vehicles than if they were self made millionaires if they'd worked for it they were more careful with it 
than if they'd inherited it. Wealthy people know how to build wealth by minimizing your taxable income. <laughs> income tax is a tax on income, not on wealth. Some people can't be wealthy because their incomes are too high. Some of you in here that are in the financial world know what I'm talking about. Uh, we want to pay our tax, but we don't want to pay more tax than we should be paying, for sure. And if you are paying more tax than you should, then you're foolish. So get people around you that are smart and help you to know how to not pay more tax than you should. It's not deceitful. It's not wrong. It's just smart. Some of you, oh God, oh God, bless me, help me. And God says, you're paying too much tax. <laughs> help yourself. You're paying too much tax. Work smarter. Get some advice and pay less tax. Invest more. Get away from high income and high taxable income and try and work away. You know, find smart people that help you on that score of things too. Those of you that are in that world especially know what I'm talking about. All right. Practical, simple stuff. Hey guys, just want to let you know about a resource that I'm making available to everyone called Aging Well. It is a video series, almost 11 hours in length, over 60 videos. And it covers aging well in five areas. Aging well physically, mentally, emotionally, relationally, and generationally. It has a ebook that goes with it. It also has a Q&A and workbook that comes with it. I think you guys are going to find a real addition to your personal growth investment. I hope you'll enjoy it. You're going to find it at gbpacademy.com.